getting started here today. Um, I have shared a link at the top of the uh, room, and it's about the Department of Education, uh, who announced uh, some initiative an initiative to address uh, discipline. So this was on July nineteenth, twenty twenty two, and the topic of today's clubhouse is titled "The Rise in MDRs and Outcries Prompts U.S. Department." of education initiatives. So I am Nazi Paterov, educational diagnostician and moderator for today's discussion. And I am joined by Dr. Asma Anwar, whose research interest is in the area of restorative practices and the disparities in uh, discipline between the disadvantaged minorities and the advantaged majority. She has her uh, ED doctorate from Abilene Christian University, and she has co-authored a chapter in the book Addressing Issues of Systematic Racism During Turbulent Times by Jennifer Butcher and Wilbert Baker. So the reason I'm doing Clubhouse in general is just because I have realized that we are at the end of a long road for a child. Uh, when we receive a child, there's been usually lots of lots of people um, who have attempted to work with a child, and um, whatever they have tried has has not worked. And when diagnosticians, I've just come to understand too that remind myself that when diagnosticians work work hard, it's often because what schools are doing is not working, unfortunately. So um, satisfaction in our jobs, you know, as diagnosticians really depends on school reform in order to keep us motivated. And we need to stay, be reminded of the greater vision. And that greater vision is that there are a lot of efforts for school reform and we can be part of, of that. And um, so this school reform is a chance for our jobs to improve, for schools to improve, for, for students to improve. And we can't make this happen by ourselves, of course. There is hope, though, and that's what this room is about, about reminding everybody of the policies and research that's out there to give us a little bit of hope for improvement. So um, as I said, July 19th, 2022, the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services provided new guidance to help schools students. Asma, I just want to say, first of all, I forgot to say thank, thank you for joining us and welcome. And I'm going to first um, go over a little bit of summary of um, of what we are, what the, the new guidance is, and then we'll um, have I have some questions and just and we can have some discussion. So thank you again for joining us. I did forget to say that. <laughs> Hi, thank um, thank you for having me. All right. Yes, and yeah, if you're on the stage and you're not speaking, it'd be great to put push the mute bucket button like you just did. That'd be great. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. So um, the uh, the the guidance um, to help in the new schools and students. The Office of Educa Department of Education was providing new guidance to help schools um, support students with disabilities to avoid discriminatory use of discipline. The Department of Education is doing this now for two basic reasons. One, um, like I talked about last week, the Office of Civil Rights has just received a flood of complaints regarding violations of Section 504 and the disparity between children's VIPs and their IEP documentation and the actual practice or implementation of that plan. So when the Office of Civil Rights was issuing 
um, the corrective action in each case, they ended up requiring whole districts and states to implement uh, corrective action. And then um, they reported the trends in the complaints to the Department of Education so that they could determine next steps in policy. The second reason is that, of course, there have been a lot of studies that have been done now on the impact of COVID and those have put a spotlight on the rise of mental health problems in our communities. Uh, the effects of exclusionary discipline and also the lack of use of evidence-based interventions in our schools. In other words, we have research to show that show how to change school culture and provide behavior, positive behavioral supports, but we're often not using those uh, the information that we know. So those are sort of the reasons why they are doing this now. And the initiative uh, has several pieces uh, of, that provide the guidance. There's about five or six of those. The first one is a letter from the department, from the educational secretary, Miguel Cardona, and it summarizes the, all the letters that have been signed by the education secretary or the deputy, deputy secretary. Uh, it first thanks educators for their efforts. It re reinforces that the administration wants to see, wants to create safe places for students to learn. And it discusses the $130 billion that have been put into the, what's called Engage Every Student Initiative, which will help provide funds for tutors, mentors, integrated support coordinators, student success coaches, and post-secondary transition coaches. It highlights a series of three handbooks that address the impacts of the pandemic and provide evidence-based strategies for ensuring that schools can remain open safely and meet students' needs. Mostly, the education secretary wants to make sure that schools have the information and guidance about their obligations under the federal civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination by states. And the research commissioners are emphasizing research dissemination. So that's part of what I'm hoping to do is have is to use this platform for research dissemination as much as I can, uh, and also policy dissemination. So there are three handbooks. The first handbook is sort of just about getting the schools open. The second one is really about meeting the needs of the students. And the fourth one, I mean, the third one, sorry, is about um, sort of what we've learned from this whole experience and re reiterating some of those um, strategies we need to use. So I just basically summarized the second one since it was all about meeting the needs. Uh, you might know that it, it, as it starts off that it talked about giving students free meals and you know all, all the kids have gotten free meals the last two years this year. From what I've heard um, that has come to an end, but of course there are free meals for there are females for people, um, you know, of course, like before, students disadvantaged um, and low income. So um, they also talk about meeting the social, emotional, and mental health needs of students by creating safe learning environments that focus on building relationships. So that's a lot of what uh, Dr. Onworth, the restorative practices. I'm just going to move a little bit because I'm getting that I'm not good reception here. Um, there we go, I think that's better. All right, um, so it also talks about providing students with access to safe, inclusive environments um, that address the learning technology of learning, addressing inequalities, of color, low income, um, English language learners, and students with disabilities, 
and also mentions the science of learning. And while um, adverse experiences can have profound effects on students, learning environments and conditions can be designed in a way that can help students overcome the effects and thrive. And there's a link to a website called for an organization called CASEL uh, that's spelled C-A-S-E-L. It stands for the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning website. And I have heard SEL, of course, you hear that all the time, S-E-L, um, these days. And that's sort of what this is referring to. Um, so CASEL is a nonprofit organization that is funded by philanthropists, and it uses a group of educators and counselors and psychologists to promote positive behavioral supports. It was started in 1994 uh, as a result of a conference that was headed by a Dr. John Dow Jr. And um, it called for a district-wide focus on social development. And then um, Dr. Timothy Shriver and Dr. Roger Weisberg uh, began, who began the New Haven, Connecticut Social Development Program. Um, that went back all the way back to the work of Dr. James Cromer and his colleagues at the Yale University's Child Study Center. Uh, so one of the things I saw on the website is that they have just announced that they were published a new journal, which means that you know there will probably be lots of new studies coming out from that. Um, so another thing that this um, second booklet or handbook says is that you know, they want to focus a lot on the educator and staff stability and well-being as well. And a, a fifth thing it talks about is efforts to locate absent students and re-engage them and disconnect, it re-engage disconnected youth. It says that the, um, they want to focus on the use of school officials rather than law enforcement by engaging the community in the school. Uh, they warn that pun punitive actions um, include not pr promoting students to the next grade, failing them in a course, and directing parents to truancy court. And it says that the focus should be on personal outreach and step. Um, it says that the presence of law enforcement and school school and or school-based police do cause confusion and unintentional intimidation. And they give the example of the right way to do things. They say in Hillsborough uh, County in Florida, they were missing 7,000 students after COVID and they sent social workers out to the homes, found all but 300 of them. And they also used another example. They, they said that they used uh, certain laws like the McKinney-Vento McKinney Act, the Migrant Education Program, and partnerships with organizations like City Year. And finally, it says that we just can't go back to the way we've done things before. Um, just in keeping schools safe, we now do have to worry about uh, continuing COVID safe practices and encouraging hand washing, contact tracing, and using ventilation and promoting vaccinations and things like that. Um, so in addition to uh, this letter it ha and these handbooks, um, it has a question and answer I'm addressing document addressing IDEA's discipline um, provisions. It clarifies some terms like the term exclusionary discipline, change in placement, and what to do with students who are not yet eligible for special education but have been uh, have a suspected disability. And it says that IDEA does not really define discipline, but does talk about an interim alternative placement, educational setting, 
um, or an IAES and how those are defined and what special circumstances um, can allow. And in addition to this question and answer document, there is a manual on the positive proactive approaches in supporting children with disabilities. Um, it says you have to be pro proactively address disparities and negative outcomes from exclusionary discipline. You have to use evidence-based approaches, like, um, it mentions MTSS. It says you should use universal design for learning, PBIS, positive behavior interventions and supports. It tells you where you can find these. Um, there's a center on PBIS and a national center for pyramid model innovators. And it says after universal design to look at targeted interventions and then intensive interventions. So you wanna go from universal, have a plan for universal design, that's for everyone, um, then the targeted interventions, and finally the intent intervention. And if a child's receiving intensive interventions, of course have to have a BIP, um, that is targeted and um, could be an accommodation or a goal. And um, then they finally say that there has to be professional development and support for teachers. They um, The last two things they have on there, one is a published fact sheet about implementing 504s for children with social emotional disabilities. It basically defines what a reasonable accommodation is, what discriminatory treatment is, and what the effects of uh, of um, discriminatory practices are. So you can't um, treat a student differently because of the disability. For example, discipline can't be more strict punishment for a student with a disability than for a student without a disability. Um, and then overall, they wanna send a message that schools do not have to choose between complying with Section 504 and IDEA and keeping their school community safe. So that is the main message they wanna send. And I think all of us struggle with that um, often. Like I said, I'll repeat that one more time. They wanna send a message that schools do not have to choose between complying with Section 504 and IDEA and keeping their school community safe. So welcome everyone, and I hope we could get a good discussion going about this. So Dr. Anwar, I know you did some research on this. Can you just tell us a little bit about what restorative practices is and um, maybe a, a general definition or characteristics of it, and then what some of um, your research showed? Thank you again. So Restorative practices, you know, the, the state of Texas, they initiated the uh, restorative practices as an alternative um, and therapeutic form of discipline for our schools back in 2015. And um, TEA is defining restorative practices as a relational approach to building school climate and addressing student behavior. This approach fosters belonging over exclusion, social engagement over control, and meaningful accountability over punishment. So uh, one of the reasons why um, the restorative practices initiative was started, as uh, Nazi was saying, you know, school districts around the state were struggling with a very large number of students being disciplined and the disproportionality was not just with students of color, but also students of color and student which had uh, special ed disabilities. So um, there was um, a lot of disparity going on between uh, students in the general education setting and students in the special education setting getting disciplined. 
Um, as far as a kind of like a background for uh, restorative practices, um, the principle is not new in the United States. It really is um, embedded in the criminal and juvenile justice system going back all the way to the 1970s. And um, it does me, uh, you know, as far as like the foundation of restorative practices, it's focused on meeting the needs of all individuals. So not just the uh, person who, um, you know, was uh, doing harm to somebody else, but also the person who was on the receiving end, and then everybody around uh, in that situation as well. So for example, you know, if a student is, let's say, you know, they got into a fight, so the discipline is going to be, or the harsh discipline is all, all, of course going to be on the student who started the fight. But um, oftentimes we do not look back at the student who was on the receiving end because um, we break up the fight and then, you know, we focus on the other student and not on the needs of the student who was, who was the victim in this case. But then um, restorative practices looks at it in a way where we're going to look at the needs for both of them. And um, one of the re things that we're going to do for them is to um, see if they, there is a relationship that can be built. Um, if there is a way for uh, the student who was um, engaging in maladaptive verbal, uh, mal maladaptive behavior, sorry, they are able to see uh, what harm they're causing, not just to the student, but to everybody else around them. And then see the other person and the situation as, uh, you know, on a more human level than just, oh, this is the student that I don't like, or this is the student that said something and triggered me, and now I'm going to do something. Same goes for students, uh, you know, in, in classrooms when um, they have um, verbal or physical aggression towards staff. So they need to see this, the, the teachers and the educators as human and not just as, you know, somebody who's telling them, do this, do this, and do this, and now they're, you know, going to act out. And all of this falls back on whether or not there is a relationship, there is a connection that, that's been made between the student and those around them. If there's a connection, then there's a good chance that uh, the maladaptive behavior will either not happen, or if it happens, it can be de-escalated de much quickly than, you know, going to a, like a restraint or then, you know, getting um, ISS or OSS, anything like that. So there are, you know, basics, the basis of this is that we have to be proactive instead of reacting to the behavior. We have to be proactive about our connections and our relationships to help the students be successful, you know, socially, emotionally, and then of course, that would also lead to academic success as well. So the there's this term, the school to prison pipeline, and yes. it's particularly referring, especially to children with disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about the school to prison pipeline and what it is? Absolutely. So the school to prison pipeline, you know, basically it affects students uh, who are, um, let's say they are, you know, part of the um, socioeconomic uh, area that is less advantaged. And then uh, usually what happens is that if they've had at least one or two runs with um, the law, and it, it could be something like, you know, um, something happened in the school and the SRO got involved, something happened at the high school and they, you know, they end up, end up some some way tied to the, uh, the police. And then maybe they are have, they've been given out of school suspension. Then uh, what happens is that uh, the students, um, the the gap between their achievement and the gap between uh, where they need to be socially emotionally 
keeps on widening because they're missing days of school. They're being sent home, um, you know, given out of school suspension and they're, they're being sent home. And then um, when they're home, oftentimes there is nobody at home to make sure that they're not getting in trouble because their families, their caregivers, their parents, they're working. So then students can get into situations where they're either, you know, um, around people who might be dealing in drugs or other kinds of, you know, things that are not good for the students. And it kind of becomes like a cycle for them where, you know, they come back to school, something else happens, now they're back out of school and they have easy access or those people who are who shouldn't be around our students, um, they have easy access to those students because they're at home and they have been suspended out of the school. And then of course, if you look at the data for the school to prison pipeline, uh, the most affected students against are students of color and then also students with disabilities, uh, especially students who um, may have, you know, ADHD or autism uh, or students uh, with emotional disturbance. So those students are most affected when they get to high school and, you know, they get into this rut of, or the cycle of, you know, getting suspended and then being out of school and then having run-ins with the law. I think I read um, in your chapter, it was something like 23% more likely to drop out if you yeah. uh-huh. yes so what happens is that you know they kind of lose hope for their future and a school becomes more of a burden than something that would provide them with um, skills that they need to you know be successful in the real world so um, the dropout rate of course becomes uh, you know as high as 23 percent and um, schools you know as much as they want to they lose track of these students too and, um, you know, they can, you know, they're, when they're at home and they're not coming to school, they're going to get notices, their parents are going to get notices or, you know, for absence and everything. But eventually if the, the student has dropped out, then, you know, that's it. And sometimes schools have no way of finding out what happened to the, to the student. And um, the more they get into the cycle of getting suspended or getting harsh discipline, the more likelihood there is that they are going to view school as a place uh, where negative things happen to them, as a place where they are not, you know, welcome, as a place where they get into trouble all the time. So then the mindset becomes like, what is the point of going to school? I might as well, you know, do something and get out. Plus, you know, if they are getting suspended over and over again, then um, it also becomes very easy for them to do something and know that the outcome is going to be out of school suspension and then they'll be home for a couple of days. So we have to think about it that way too. Like, you know, is suspension really doing its job or are we really um, getting these students in a habit where they are more likely to stay at home and they know how to stay at home just by acting out. So how this impacts us as diagnosticians, I know Dr. Anwar, you are also been a diagnostician. is this, you know, when you're handling MDRs and uh, someone asked what an outcry ARD was, um, but basically just as much as we're handling or we're dealing with plans to address discipline, we're also dealing with plans to address students who are uh, verbalizing threats of wanting to hurt themselves or others or suicidal ideas. So, yeah. um, you know, we, a lot of times having to go back to IEP meetings, adjust um, our our plans for these kids. And a lot of times we're involved in being part of that. Um, so I just thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own experience um, as a diagnostician 
and uh, and addressing discipline and um, what you th if you think that you know maybe some of these initiatives might help. So, like you said, outcries are when students have um, some kind of harmful thoughts, um, and they could be suicide ideation. They could be um, stu students who are cutting themselves or who are harming themselves in any other way, um, or they're expressing intent to harm somebody else. So that is also that also becomes an outcry. So what happens in a, in the school district that um, I work in, um, the counselor, the gen ed counselor. Uh, is the first one who has to do a risk assessment. And they um, sit down with the student and they, there's a whole questionnaire that they go through and then they rate the student. And based on uh, the rating, the student can, uh, you know, the risk could be uh, moderate or it could be high. And then depending on what the outcry was about and depending on what the score is, um, either the student is, um, you know, sent back to the classroom and there is um, going to be eyes on the student at all times, or uh, the student's parent is called and they are, you know, they're informed about what's going on and then they are released to the parent. Um, so that is the first step. But then as a follow-up, um, the diagnosticians, uh, we have to have a brief ARD for them, which is called a brief ARD and an outcry. And um, we are part of it, they're the teacher, they're the gen ed teacher, the school administration, the counselor, the special ed counselor, and the LSSP, they're all part of the team, and the, and the parent, they're all part of the team that looks at what happened and what can be done to help the student. And um, most often the students end up having a safety plan, which is, um, there are two kinds of safety plans. One is a district one, and then one is visualized. And uh, the safety plan is put in, put in place, and then the student's um, evaluation is um, looked at again to see um, if there are any things that were missed, if there is reason to update, um, you know, not just the social emotional, but also academic to see if the academic struggles are translating into social emotional issues. And uh, from, so then we take it from there. Sometimes the students do receive a change of placement as well. So they might end up in a more restrictive setting because of um, the severity of the outcry. So that is the outcry. And then as far as the MDR goes, of course, if there's an incident where uh, the student is um, involved in some kind of physical altercation or there's persistent misbehavior or um, they have, um, they're in possession of uh, things that they should not be bringing to school, for example, the vaping pens or drugs or medicine, you know, things like that, um, or um, knives or, or firearms, anything like that. So then we have to have an MDR. And at the MDR, um, of course, the discipline uh, is dependent on the severity of the offense. And then the LSSP is the one who determines whether or not the, uh, the behavior was a manifestation of the disability or not. And then depending on what the finding of the LSSP is, um, the student can be assigned um, out of school suspension uh, to a separate setting, which is DAEP for us. And uh, usually they end up like 45 successful school days. They can also get maybe 30 su successful school days. It depends. And um, again, we also look, we have to look at um, their evaluation and see if they have a functional behavior assessment that was, that's been done previously. If not, then um, we start collecting data for that. If the student doesn't have a BIP, then uh, at the MDR, we do put in goal, goals, depending on what the behavior was. 
And then uh, we also say that we will be updating the BIP goals based on the, the, the data that we would collect for the functional behavior assessment. And if needed, uh, we get consent from the parent to update their psychological or their counseling evaluation or everything you know that that's needed. As far as how it affects the DIAGs, um, so MDRs um, and outcries, those are urgent um, cards. So um, for MDR, you cannot have it any later than 10 days from the date that the event happened, but we usually don't wait that long. Um, we usually get it done as quickly as we can. So we have to call the parent up. We have to get their permission to have the art before, sometimes before even the five days are over, and then get everybody you know, on the team together, make sure that there is a time that you know, it works for everyone and uh, have the MDR. So that's one piece of that. The other thing is that um, for the MDRs to be, you know, held, uh, sometimes we also have to have the, not just the out, for, I'm sorry, for the outcries, we have to have uh, the level two meetings, which are meetings that are uh, held at the campus. Uh, and the school, school admin is the one who's going to um, host the meeting. But then um, the upper level special education administration is part of that. And uh, we go through the risk, risk assessment. And um, again, there's another questionnaire that's, that's answered. And uh, everything is, again, reviewed to see uh, whether or not a, another meeting is warranted or whether we will wait to see what happens at the outcry. So all those steps, uh, of course, you know, they, they require time. They require planning. They require getting a big, big team together. The parent has to be involved. So all of those things need to happen if and when there is an, either an outcry or, this, or there needs to be a, an MDR. Another reason we can have the MDR if the student has been out of placement for 10 days. So then we have to look at this at, at, and see why uh, the behavior is, um, is the behavior, there's a pattern to the behavior, is it the same behavior that's happening over and over again? Uh, what can be done to address it? What changes need to be made to the student's support or services or programming to make sure that they are being successful. So there's a question if it's 10 school days or 10 calendar days. Um, see, over the summer I did sleep, so I'm going to say it's... Uh, school I days. It's I, 10, I, I think it's 10 school days, but we never wait for that long. Yeah. yeah. Right. It is, yeah, it is, uh, we don't wait that long. It happens pretty quick. So I asked on Facebook, you know, how this is affecting people, and one person said that she has, just has to be so on her toes and be quick because by the time she's having one meeting, she's plan she has to quickly close that one, file it or lock it or whatever program you have and yeah. get in prep the next meeting because these meetings are like every less than every 10 days sometimes. And um, it just doesn't give her a lot of time to sort of process all this paperwork and get one set of paperwork out and plan another one. Um, as, as you know, with, with all the number of students that she has. And that, that does happen. Um, last year, we ended up having MDR on the same student um, a couple of times. And um, like this year, the first thing we're going to do, because the second one happened right at the end of the school year, uh, we are going to get consent for reevaluation and complete a new evaluation. So um, as far as, you know, having um, MDRs and not having turnaround time, the way our district does it, uh, we don't have separate MDRs for when they go to in-school suspension or they're you know, out of school suspension and then they go to DAEP. In-school suspension usually happens 
you know, the day of the incident. And then they also can be assigned out of school suspension at the same time. And while they are, uh, you know, in suspension, we plan and get together and get the MDR going. So, um, and then, you know, at that time, DAEP is assigned. So we don't have separate meetings for ISS, OSS, and then DAEP. We have one meeting. So I, so I think maybe some districts do it differently, but in our district, it's just one meeting. And then on the MDR form or the MDR supplement, we note the days that they served in ISS and then the day, number of days that they served in OSS and then the date range for the DAEP, like from this state to this date, is going to be 45 successful school days. And of course, if they're not successful, then do, days do get added to that. And when they're ready to come back, then they come back. And then another person um, was saying that every time in her district, every time she has to do um, a BIP or a functional behavioral assessment to do a BIP, they are using the read document and so they keep adding i guess this is somebody maybe with e, uh eSped because with eSped you keep adding to the read document so um i guess that was making it very cumbersome because you know this read document is just getting longer and longer and longer but um i don't know if anybody here has had that experience but that might be something um i, I don't think that you know just that a, a FBA has to be, you know, a read every time. You have to do a read every time you have an FBA. But um, I could see how, having done ESPED paperwork before, how someone would feel like they have to keep adding to that same document so that there's a writing record of it. But that would be creating definitely a lot of paperwork. So um, maybe something to think about there. Did anyone else have anything to share about maybe their experiences with um, attempts to lower um, or improve a discipline in their schools or um, m maybe some strategies that people use in an IEP meeting to help um, turn things around, um, please share and you know I'll be watching the comments. Um, I had one last question you know one of the things I learned is um, the difference between you know what warrants exclusionary discipline to keep the school environment sort of emergency situation safe and what what doesn't and how we're kind of using um, we're using exclusionary we could be using exclusionary discipline for um, things that don't warrant it so can you talk a little bit about the difference between those sure so initially when zero tolerance policies were introduced um, they were uh, specifically for um, uh, incidents that would, you know, have some kind of like a firearm or something attached to it. They were not for everything else. So they were more uh, as a reaction to uh, the school shootings that, you know, started happening um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But ever since then, zero tolerance policies have um, evolved into much, much more. And um, the push for therapeutic alternatives for, to harsh discipline is because of the increase, increased use of zero tolerance policies. Like when I was doing my research for my dissertation, I came across some studies where they were talking about uh, kindergartners, so students as young as kindergarten, uh, getting um, out of school suspension for bringing a nail cutter or having a nail cutter in their in their backpack and um, and that was falling under the zero tolerance policy. So of uh, the administrators, it had become like a go-to uh, and that give, and had given them, you know, 
a way to just handle discipline uh, without investing any time in the student or their situation. So zero tolerance did become way more than it was supposed to be. And um, restorative practices, the positive um, behavior supports um, that we have in our schools, um, the new push for um, creating relationships, for trying to lower the number of uh, students getting disciplined, that I think is the right way to go because um, telling students to go home because now they're suspended is easy or telling students to go and sit in a separate room and you know in ISS is easy but investing the time in the student from day one and um, getting to know them and getting to know what their needs are and then meeting those needs is not that easy but of course it can be done and um, I, I think that especially in the district that I work in um, I do think that um, we have a lot of teachers and a lot of educators who are invested way more in the students than um, maybe they have been before. Um, one of the things that I came across when I was doing my research, uh, my interviews for my research, this, the teachers were thinking that the restorative practices is more like, you know, giving the student a piece of candy and then, you know, telling them to go back to classroom. And of course, that's not what it is. So that was a misconception. And now that they've implemented it, they do see the value and they do see the, the, the change that it's brought to their classroom, to the, to the climate of school, and um, the change that they see in their students. One of the teachers that I interviewed was uh, a big teacher, so he has a behavior intervention class. And um, of course, if you're f familiar with the behavior intervention class, especially at the secondary level, um, the students, you know, they have um, a mind of their own and um, they are most of the time they want to do what they want to do and they're also you know their their social emotional needs are very high but uh, he said that you know investing the time in, in getting the relationship with the students not just with him but also his paraprofessionals uh, was worth it and he saw the worth of it especially when COVID happened and um, the students were not in school the educators were not in school and they were connecting through each other just by through technology. So um, zero tolerance doesn't work always. Of course, there are going to be instances when their zero tolerance needs to happen. If somebody's in danger, there's bodily harm, those kind of things, yes, but not for every single thing. It's better to have a relationship and better to make connections than to isolate the student and, and you know send them away. That's not going to work. So I wanted to give everybody a, um a little bit of uh, information about a continuing education opportunity that is free. I saw it come up today from Riverside Insights, um, and it is um, on this topic. And uh, let's see if I can find. Oh, it's called Targeted Assessment in the Era Era of Learning Disruption. Um, and don't have the. But if you go to the um, Riverside Insights website, you should be able to find it. Uh, I can't remember the name of the speaker, but um, they have a, a guest of noted speaker and that's doing the webinar. So you might want to check that out. And I just thought I'd maybe in the room with um, maybe some takeaways for things that are in our control that we can do. Um, I was thinking that, you know, if we know that these things are um, in the Department of Education's website, there are those handy handbooks. Um, maybe we point some of our administrators toward those and say, um, you know, just 
or, or maybe we join a school improvement plan or um, I don't know. I just wanted to see if maybe you had some takeaways, Dr. Anwar, um, or if anyone had any takeaways for something that we can do that is in our control. I, I do think that um, one of the things that made me very hopeful was when I was looking at the professional development schedule for our campuses, um, there were separate times, like dedicated time set aside for restorative practices, uh, refreshers and trainings. So I think that um, that really is helpful. And other than that, um, like you're saying, you know, us DIACs joining one of those the school committees or uh, being part of the campus improvement plan, I think that would be helpful because usually um, when we are teachers, we do participate in those things. But when we become DIACs, we kind of end up in our own little world. So, of course, like you said, if we invest um, our efforts into getting to, you know, make sure that our students are not being disciplined harshly, it's going to benefit all of us. For us, DIAG, it'd be the benefit of maybe some less paperwork and uh, some more time to take care of some other things that we have to do. So I do like your idea of maybe, you know, joining one of those committees and then uh, becoming part of it so our voice is also heard. And then too, I mean, as diagnosticians, we're writing recommendations and not, and I know a lot of these recommendations for behavior often do come the school psychologists, but not, it's not always that school psychologists are involved in every certain case and not always that they they need to be involved because some of these things are sort of isolated or um, not patterns of behavior. Um, and and so uh, I think maybe, you know, we, we for a kid, for example, with ADHD, um, maybe the behaviors aren't so severe uh, that weren't a, a, you know, school psychologist and uh, FBA, maybe it's just their sort of on-task behaviors, those sort of annoying little things that not really, um, not really, uh, you know, the, the child's not really just being a total disruption, but might be kind of as sort of an annoying behavior for a teacher, then maybe we can also make, put some of these recommendations in our, um, in our reports as well. So uh, that was just another idea. All right. Well, uh, let's say we got a quiet bunch today. I think it is an overwhelming week of you, if you have probably like most of us, um, just started off the school year and have been in a week's long worth of trainings and probably just want to, um, get ready to go to happy hour right now. So I hope all of you have a good weekend. Thank you, Dr. Anwar again for joining us. We really appreciate it. I hope you can join us again, especially when we talk about discipline. Um, it's been, you know, this is not really my big cup of tea. I'm usually, you know, learning disabilities and um, dyslexia and all those kinds of things that we often do for child find in their early ages for learning. Um, but it does impact my, you know, my professional career. And I think it is something that um, if if there are initiatives to make improvements, um, hopefully that can have also good Im impact on, you know, our, our careers as well. So definitely keep an eye on this um, to see how this $130 billion are going to be used for new counselors and such, but it should be interesting to see.
All right. So thank you so much for joining. Do you have any final words, Asma? No, I just want to thank you for inviting me. I, I really enjoyed it. Sure. We got one more comment. Um, somebody says that she received a TEA Rural Schools Grant Ooh, for Ooh. an SESI unit for students whose behavior interferes with, with learning of others, and it includes teaching behavior therapy in the into the curriculum um, with the understanding that the student will transition back to the original LRE. Um, very interesting. Um, Shelly, is, is that a special education um, initiative or is it op also open to general education? She said it's just a special education initiative. All right, well, see, it's, it's gonna happen. It's starting. We'll see more and more um, this money makes its way. The announcement's just been made on July 19th. So it's very recent. Um, so very exciting to see all that could happen. I appreciate all of you all for joining um, and look forward to some future topics. Um, so just keep checking back. I, I'm still trying to um, finalize speakers all the time. So uh, I think in two weeks I have a uh, Penny Reed, Dr. Penny Reed, assistive technology guru. Um, I'm looking forward to doing that one with her. So um, yeah, please keep checking back and good luck with the beginning of your school year.